time to third. Where do you want me to put the third rose? Hello and welcome to the Director's Wall Season 2 Coppola cast. I'm one of your co-hosts, AJ Gonzalez. And I'm the other host, Brian Connolly. All right, we are closing in on the end of uh, Coppola's filmography, or at least catching up to where he is now. We're in the final, or in the third part, maybe fourth part of his his career, when he's now basically stepped away from Hollywood and is now doing these very interesting, totally indie movies. Yeah, very, uh, back to kind of... What he started doing, kind of before he broke big, and also kind of what he did after he failed hard after one from the heart, and kind of this this kind of stuff reminds you a bit of like when he was doing Rumblefish or further back, the Rain People, and so this is definitely like what he in many interviews that we've referenced and seen, we always talked about kind of his goal of where he wanted to go, like like to make these like movies by his own on his own terms. With his own money, with his vineyard money, he, I feel, has paid his debts off by this point, and now is just sort of making money as a couple of vineyard guy and makes these mm-hmm. strange movies. Uh, uh, the first of those three is from 2007, released in December, there at the end of the year, uh, Youth Without Youth. Uh, oh, and let's talk about the wine real quick, as we always do. And we've had this one before, so we don't need to read the description. But it's always good to plug it in the endless hope that they'll send us a free case and never have. But uh, this is the Coppola Pinot Grigio Diamond Collection. Good for the uh, 100-degree-plus days we've been experiencing in Texas for the last uh, 40 years. Yeah, and it almost almost rained today, so now it's just extra humid. (laughs) Extra humid. Uh, yeah, nice, yeah. nice chilled nice white chilled wine. White wine, uh, but we don't need to go further into that because we've already we've find whatever episode we first had this on and we've read the back. We, we I feel we've gone through all of them, like the types of wine, like maybe not the different. There's new vintages. This is a 2022 Pinot Grigio. I don't know if we've had that yet, but you know, yeah, but no, they, this is good. It's this good. Is good. <laughs> yeah, it's got that. Uh, Nice kind of tartness that a Pinot Grigio has. Yeah, highly recommend to buy a bottle, uh, chill it, and then (laughs) just have a relax and have chilly, fruity, but not too fruity white wine. It has kind of a grapefruit sort of, a little bit. That's kind of what the tartness reminds me of. Yeah. It's like a grapefruity It's good. Um, Paired well with the pizza we just ate. Yeah. a nice white pie. So, Youth Without Youth. Yeah, I guess before we go into... Everything about it, let's just kind of do the plot, uh, which I unfortunately, <laughs> last episode we divided it between the two and I stupidly picked the first one and you did Supernova, which means I have to try to go through the muck that is the complex in plot. I watched this less than a month ago and today I was like, I think it's like so much information that my brain couldn't remember. It was like felt like when you're in a classroom and the, the teacher's is going on a long lecture and giving you a bunch of things and then you're like ready to do the test and you're like, I didn't retain or remember any of that. It was too much. <laughs> and I reread the Wikipedia page and it's a lot. There's so much that happens in there's, this movie. There's even a uh, note it's, on it's, the Wikipedia uh, page asking readers 
to pare it down. <laughs> I know, I've never seen that. It says, uh, yeah, I noticed that too when I looked at the plot. It said, uh, I've never seen this before. This section's plot summary may be too long or excessively detailed. Please help improve it by removing unnecessary details and making it more concise. Left in 2020, no one has done that. And you can't do that because this movie is... And we'll talk about whether to its betterment or detriment. Is betterment a word? Yes, sure. Uh, a lot going on in this movie. Maybe too much. Uh, or maybe not enough of the too much. But basically... Gosh, how am I going to do this? Let's. I'm not going to read the Wikipedia. I'm just going to... Okay, we're just going to do the Cliff's Notes version. So, we're in Europe. World War II is just starting to, to happen here. There's an old man named Dominique Mataille... Played by Tim Roth and Old Man Face. And he's sort of, at the end of his life, he's spent his, uh, his whole career has been studying linguistics and language of the world. And he has, as most old men in movies that are alone, a lost love that he never, like uh, with a lady named Laura? Like Lara. Lara. Laura. And he, and this is all in Europe. Uh, Poland? Where is this? Romania. Romania. Sorry. Uh, and he's ready to die. He's ready to die. And as he's crossing the street, he is struck by lightning in what, in my opinion, is the best part of the movie. Uh, and he's struck by lightning, but he does not die. He gets turned to the English patient, basically. He gets baked to a crisp in this disgusting, looks like an overcooked uh, meatloaf. And he gets rushed to the hospital. And he heals fairly quickly. And much to the surprise of the doctors, is a, and to the audience, a very young, handsome-looking, the Tim Roth that we knew back in 2007 when this movie was made. And uh, one of the main people kind of like dealing with him is the professor, I'm going to get the last name wrong, Roman Staculescu, played by the great Brito Gans. And they are like, so who are you? Like, you're just this young guy. Who? And, and Tim Roth kind of, I think he says that he is 80 years old or whatever. But they're yeah. like, that's not true. You look, or he's 70. And I don't remember how old he's supposed to be. 80, 70. He's like 70 something. Yeah. But he's like 1930, 70, not like modern 70 where they're like being cool and doing stuff. Yeah. Uh, they're the youth of today, the seventy-year-olds, and so then he be kind of be, he kind of becomes this medical anomaly in the circle of doctors of like, oh, he says he's seventy, but he has the body of a thirty-eight-year-old or however old Tim Roth was, and then there's sort of a hint of that maybe he has a little bit of like a psychic ability, and him and Bruno Gans' character kind of form this relationship. And of course, because Tim Roth has special powers, the Nazis start to get interested in him and be like, oh, could this be could this be the Superman that we've been trying to find and aim to be? And so they are like, they must have Tim Roth. And then he has a relationship with a lady who's a Nazi, uh, who who's so much of a Nazi she wears like swastika garter belts, which I guess they made back then. So like she there's a sexy scene and she's wearing her lingerie and there's like little swastikas. Yeah, he's, uh, he's, he, Tim Roth is, is moving, he's moving downtown and sees a swastika on her garter and is like, uh, maybe I didn't see that. I'm just going to keep on. And then they're in bed together and she's topless and then he finds under her bed 
a like special edition copy of Mein Kampf, <laughs> like an illuminated text. Can't you can't ignore that one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a real that's a real boner killer right there. If I it's Mein Kampf. Also not comfortable to sleep on a Mein Kampf, I'm guessing. But <laughs> so that so then for some reason, and we can talk about this. Bruno Gantz's character just kind of stops being in the movie without a lot of explanation. And then all of a sudden, we're flying through time in a montage that doesn't make a lot of sense because then it now feels like we're in like an X-Men movie. And he's gaining more powers, but we're not getting a lot of info as to how. So now he can like read a book by putting his hand on it and know the whole book. Or he can like, you know, uh, know how a gambling, like a casino game is going to play out and can win, win big. And this is, and he's, he has like telekinesis now, and this is all, not even I wouldn't even say explain. It's just happening in a montage. Where he's just gaining all the stuff, and he's never aging. So he's staying young, and he's becoming like a basically a Marvel character. He's becoming a superhero, and then he, then the Nazis come back towards sort of the end of the war. It's now the forties. We've gone through many years. And there's this whole thing where he totally does like a Magneto thing where he makes the Nazi like shoot himself and kind of gets into their brain and stuff. And then he goes on a vacation post-war somewhere (laughs) in Europe and sees a lady, a young woman on vacation who reminds him of his precious Lara, Lara from his past. And then some weird lightning happens again there and she gets struck by lightning and then she is found in like a like a hole, like or a cave, talking in an ancient language, Sanskrit or something like that. And so then he, of course, is like, "This is the lady for me," because it's like, how, what are the chances that there's another person struck by lightning that uh, you know uh, is and is obsessed and speaks a, a, a ancient language? That's what I studied. This is great. And then it uh, becomes almost like a. Uh, Greenberg sort of thing, if you will, of the seven-year-old man getting uh, won over and fixed and changed by a, a young lady. And then, but then it turns out, and by the way, spoilers, uh, as with every episode, we're just going to give the whole thing away. Because he's in the presence of this lady, oh, backtrack. So she keeps thinking that not, not only she's speaking another language that she didn't know prior after getting struck by lightning, but she swears that she, she kind of develops this... Uh, altered personality of she actually existed a long time ago she was like an old buddhist like back when that was invented and knew of this place in india yeah india and and she can describe it and so then they said him so tim roth and a few other kind of like i don't know what you would call them other like history professor people Take her to India to be like, if she knows where this cave is, then there is some weird, you know, mystical thing going on, metaphysical thing where she can, like, travel in time in her mind. And it's proven to be true. She knows where the cave is. She says he's, and everyone there is like, oh, how would she know this unless it's a thing? And this keeps happening where she'll go in these little spells of being this other person. But then the sad thing is Tim Roth realizes that the more he's around her, she actually has the reverse, uh, like she he that she is getting older quickly. So like when he met her on vacation, she was maybe let's say twenty eight, thirty. But then she, <laughs> this really funny part where he's like, 
He's like, oh, I can't look at her. It's terrible. She looks like she, she's like forty two, and she just and they reveal her, and she just looks like a normal person, <laughs> just without the Hollywood. But he's acting like she's the Elephant Man or something, which is hilarious. And then even when it's later, when he's like devastated, he's like, oh my god, she's getting so old. They show her in sort of an olded up uh, makeup, and still just looks like a normal like fifty year old. But he like he can't deal with it, you know. Uh, dudes, they don't—they don't want to be with an old lady. Uh, he, so then he's like, "I gotta leave you." Uh, and then while this is all going on, there's like an alt, there's another Tim Roth that may or may not be in his mind. It kind of talks to him through mirrors, and there's scenes where they're kind of like both in the same scene, and they have these dialogues, and there's this whole plot point of these three roses. I don't really remember what they have to do with anything, but have just like proved that. Something or another is going on. Yeah, they were the way for the double, the double of Tim Roth to prove that he, like, has power, power, and he's like from beyond. And so he gives him like two roses, and he's supposed to give him a third one, that then finally turns up at the end. Yeah, and then he goes back. Tim Roth then, kind of heartbroken from having to end this relationship, goes back. Like, it's now, like, the 60s or whatever. And he goes back to Romania and sees a bunch of old men that were, like, his friends. Or I don't really understand how that works because he was already an old man in the yeah, 30s. But so who are, the, are they Those doctors? are the old men from his... You, from They're the same old men from the beginning. So somehow they didn't die and like they're, they're still the there. same seven... It doesn't... I didn't make no sense to me. But then there's something about, like, the third rose can be da-da-da, and then he's told by his double that the apocalypse is going to happen or the world's going to end, and that'll make an even more super person like him or he will be the leader of these... I don't know. And he was just like, I don't want that. And then he is found dead, and then the rose kind of appears in his hand, and it feels sort of like a firewalk of me, twin David Lynchy sort of thing. And then that's the, that's the end of the movie. And a lot of other things happen. It's a very convoluted... <laughs> like, look at the Wikipedia page. They said it's too long. Even Wikipedia is like, this is too long. And so that was the best... That's the best I can do with, a, with this movie. That's, um, uh, that, that's pretty much it. And there's... There's a lot going on, and I don't know what it is or what it means. I saw this movie before, not in, not in 2007. Uh, a couple years later, I watched it on DVD, and I have no, I only remember being confused. I had literally no memory of what actually happened in the movie. <laughs> And the movie's long. <laughs> the movie, it's it's two it's hours. Two hours and four minutes. I mean, yeah. I guess that's not considered long anymore. But it's like half a Russo. But like, still, like it's a two-hour movie. That yeah, I watched it not even a month ago. And this morning, I was like, "What are we going to talk about? I don't remember any of this movie at all." But I know like a lot happened, and it's just that it's that memory overload where too much is given to you that you don't retain any of it. And I had to just quickly, you know, run through the whole thing to kind of remind myself of it. But before we get into kind of picking this apart, can you, being the the film scholar, kind of put this movie like what 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 how this happened? Where are we with Coppola? Can you put it in sort of a context yeah. of, where, of where we 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 last left him, kind of being this uh, re-editor of Hollywood films just to make some money. And he had directed a movie since 1997 with 
the other rain one, the rainmaker, not the rain people, uh, which we really liked and it's really good. Uh, and then he decided just to make wine and re-edit weird shelved movies as some scam or something. Listen to the last episode we go into it. So like what how did he get back? What happened? How did this happen? Where is this? So from what I can piece together, because the uh, biography I have on him ends in like 98, 99, and there wasn't a whole lot I could find about Youth Without Youth. If you've never heard of this movie, that's, that's why. <laughs> <laughs> but what I, what I do know from having read stuff at the time, and I remember reading on uh, the very like old version of IMDb that Coppola's new movie is Megalopolis and it's going to be this huge sci-fi epic. That's what he was getting ready to do. And then September 11th happens and the plot of Megalopolis is about a city that gets destroyed by a horrible event and then is rebuilt by a, you know, a brilliant visionary into a utopia. And so he didn't feel right trying to make that movie mm. about a city modeled basically on New York <laughs> after this horrible thing happened yeah. to New York. So he like shelved that. Also, what we talked about in the last episode is by this point, even though he had this good uh, experience with the, with the Rainmaker, he just kind of plugged out of Hollywood and decided he was just going to focus on his vineyard. And I listened to the commentary. There's no real, you know, origin, like, spark of, like, I read this and had to make it right away. Like, he had, was familiar with this uh, story because it's based on a novella by a Romanian author named Mercia Eliade. I'll take that. That seems right. Sure. Uh, yeah, Coppola comes back. He comes back after 10 years. With this little indie movie, which he mostly financed himself with his wine money. And I think that's the same with all these movies we're about to. I think this yes. and the next two are all kind of mostly self-financed. Yes. And I believe it's in the bonus uh, making of stuff for Twixt, where Coppola mentions that at a certain point he decided that he was only going to make movies that he could finance himself with money he made from from his vineyard, and, or at least mostly finance it himself. And I think that's still even the case with the new one that's about to come out. I think Megalopolis, though, with a big price tag, I think he's putting a lot of his own money into. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah, it's the more than money. he did for this one because that's going to be like a crazy expensive movie. I think. Yeah. So, um, like I've said before, if you've been <laughs> buying Coppola wine. <laughs> You're technically a producer. Your producer. You yeah. helped make a these movies of Megalopolis. But so he does this movie and um, it comes out towards the end of the year 2007. That works. <laughs> it was a really stacked year with movies. Like people talk about the class of 99 and all the good movies that happened there. There was a lot of good stuff in 07. Was that There Will Be Blood? There Will no Be Blood, country No Full Country. Man. Uh, you had Zodiac earlier in the oh, year. Oh, yeah. Juno, Michael Clayton, uh, Once, uh, though I didn't like it, uh, Across the Universe was that year, <laughs> The Mist. This comes out around the same time as I Am Legend and Sweeney Todd. Those were the big movies that came out in, I love, I love Sweeney Todd. in December of 07. And so this is just like squeezed in there. And you can watch the uh, uh, Not Siskel and Ebert they weren't around not, anymore. Not even, not even Ebert and 
Ebert and Roper. By this point, we had moved on to. It was still technically the show was called Ebert and Roper. But it was Roper and somebody Michael else. Michael Phillips, who uh, the became fuck is Michael Phillips. He's my favorite film critic. What? My, he's my favorite living film. critic. Really? What's yeah. is he a Chicago guy? Yeah, Chicago Tribune. Uh, he has Gene Siskel's old job. Okay. Um, why? Why do you like Michael Phillips so much? Not it just like these line. His tastes just line up with mm. mine on. On just enough movies that I'm willing to take a risk on things that I think I won't like, but he gave a good review to some weird surrealist Mexican horror movie okay. called Post Tenambrous Lux or something. Oh, yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. So I watched that and, like, I don't like this. <laughs> I don't like it. But it was his, like, pick for best of the year or whatever uh-huh. that year. Um, I feel strongly yeah. with uh, Armin White. That's the. <laughs> <laughs> and he writes. JK. The writing is very accessible. That there, there's a trend with critics, whether they were have journalism backgrounds or not, to be like very erudite. Like we're all writing New Yorker essays that just go on, and they have preambles that go on fucking forever, <laughs> and I can't take it. <laughs> Anywho, that week on. Roper and Phillips, the, the, the new Francis Ford Coppola movie, the like maker, the creator of The Godfather, his first movie in 10 years, he's back. It's like the fifth movie they review on the show mm-hmm. after the big movies, I Am Legend and Sweeney Todd, and I think The Kite Runner also. But uh, yeah, that's how this movie, it just slipped in there under the radar, played in just a few art houses made a worldwide gross of 2.6 million not a lot did yeah. not make its money back that is a and somehow fail that feels like the most coppola thing <laughs> that he could do was yeah. come back with a movie after 10 years and it's this weird thing that just like <laughs> slips in there it's it's interesting and it just it's just like i feel like this won't be the case of Megalopolis, but like I just feel like, out of his pe- groups of his peers and the people right before and right, right after, it's just it's so strange that like the guy who's made, like this this wouldn't be the case with I think other filmmakers. I feel like he is considered, yeah. People thought he kind of f- faltered much post Apocalypse Now, even though we've proven that to be wrong in terms of the movie's qualities afterwards but like this guy made the godfather and apocalypse now and the conversation and so like him coming back after 10 years is a big deal and the fact that nobody in the world thought it was a big deal (laughs) nobody cared like if scorsese stopped making movies and came back with no matter what small movie people would be excited or spielberg or anyone i feel like it's just strange that like nobody cared this was a movie that was not no one was looking forward to this, I guess. Though I feel that's changed for him. I feel like people are... Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's just because we're doing the podcast. But I feel people are interested in whatever the fuck Megalopolis will end up being. So if you haven't picked up, uh, Youth Without Youth is a strange, surreal, uh, like esoteric art house movie. It's a capital A art house movie. Where it kind of feels like a dream. Yeah, it's not like, oh, like, Rumblefish is in black and white, and there's a couple of, you know, uh, weird uh, uh, dream-like touches here and there. It's like, no, this is, there are scenes that are upside down. (laughs) There's all this weird stuff with mirrors and, like, magical realism. And there's, 
like yeah themes there's like yeah he has superpowers they're the new version of lara forgot what her that character's name was like veronica i think uh she's like as she gets older she's like mentally regressing like linguistically so she's speaking older and older languages and the thing is he knows that if he stays around her long enough he'll be able to hear the very first spoken language ever (laughs) but by that point it would have like ruined her mind and her body and then it just moves on to the next thing (laughs) and i think i i ultimately did not enjoy this movie at all uh because it's just it's it's clearly a big swing but it's just so damn confusing and i feel that has to be because the original cut of the movie is like four hours long and mark my words we will be reviewing whatever coppola cut he puts out in the next (laughs) 10 years like he's running out of movies to do director's cuts of and maybe director's cut of this will work but like just the problem with the movie is it's not that it's weird and not that it's surreal, which I can totally get into, but it just feels like it just just parts missing. It just feels like things happen or happen off screen or don't happen, and you're just kind of left being like trying to play catch up constantly. And I think it's due that the movie was originally incredibly long, and maybe the movie should have stayed incredibly long, but by Coppola's own, because this wasn't made for a studio that demanded it shorter, he was like, we need to make this shorter. And so he went through, I think, a few editors until he went with Walter Murch to kind of help. And there was a there was then a cut that was like three hours, and there was a cut that was two and a half hours, and then they took it down to two hours. But it really feels like there's big pieces, like the part that's the montage where they're going through all these things he's gaining. Feels like that could have been an hour of the movie, and it probably was. And I, I think the movie would have benefited to kind of let you kind of linger in these moments, or the fact that Bruno Gans just is like gone without any real explanation really other than like he moved away or was that you know it's like it's it just feel like this movie i get so everything happened i could be like wait what did i miss something and i had to keep kind of rewinding or pausing or just being like was i not paying attention and i and like this movie uh supposedly had 162 hours shot for it which is that's a lot and it's not like multiple cameras like that's like 162 hours of things and it's and they shot it over like months and months and months. So like they just kept making this movie for like four to five months of filming. I think something crazy like that, which would not happen if I think couple hadn't paid for it. But I feel like I'm interested to see the uncut long version, and maybe I might like it. It might be boring, but at least it'll make some more. It doesn't have to make sense, but just feel like it just feels so. It's it's disjointed feeling to me. Yeah, one of my notes is that this is it's episodic. Uh, and then I wrote the word picaresque with a question mark because I never really know how to use that word. <laughs> but it's like just moving from one thing to the next, like jumping from one thing to the next even. It doesn't really have a good flow. Mm-mm. And yeah, each of these segments feels like, well, that could be the whole movie. The old man who gets hit by lightning and now he's young again. That could be the whole movie. Or But now he has... a. Yeah, he's after the he's being pursued by the Nazis, which is probably the most interesting part of the movie. And then he falls in love. They go to India. That's like that could be a whole thing. Yeah. And then when he like after he leaves her and then goes back and 
has like an idealistic duel with his other <laughs> self. That's could be a whole thing. There's like four or five. It feels like a mini series cut down to like two hours. It's uh, it's too disjointed and the, like I couldn't keep up with it. Which is interesting because like the last the last episode was him coming in and fixing these movies that kind of had a problem of being these big messes and him coming in and fixing them whether he succeeded or not is up to your own opinion. Uh, we think he has succeeded. I think Supernova worked fantastic. Maybe not as much. But like it's funny how this movie kind of feels like that. And that's kind of what he had Walter Murch do in a way of like fix this movie, make it shorter, make it work. And it just feel it's I feel it's feels messier than the Fantastics and Supernova. It's just sort of like he didn't learn from having to re-edit and fix these other movies to make this movie that doesn't feel like a total mess. I don't necessarily <laughs> mean this as a uh, uh, a jab. The movies this really reminded me of are Benjamin Button, The Curious mm-hmm. Case of Benjamin Button, and Forrest Gump. Yeah. They're both, and I think the same writing team did both of those. Uh, those are both movies about a guy with a thing that goes through history, that stumbles through history. Yeah. That's kind of what this is. Like, he's the old man. Instead of aging backwards like Benjamin Button, he... Well, he does actually age backwards. <laughs> <laughs> it's exactly like... He, he snaps back. back. He doesn't do it slowly like Benjamin Button. He gets it all done quick. He goes back, he's young, and then, yeah, and then he's in World War Two and spies, and now he's doing this, and... Just just jumping, and it's connected by montages, and there's no like, it, there's no like pop music at the time, so we're yeah. so we're spared that at least. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, it definitely has. It feels like that kind of movie, and it definitely fits in with other couple of movies. I feel like this could be kind of the end of the trilogy. Started with Peggy Sue got married, then going with Jack, and then going to this about kind of people. Uh, with with playing with youth and eternal youth or revisiting your youth or youth without youth or whatever you want to call it. Like, kind of, or doing your life over again or what a span of life means. Like, I feel like Jack is about a kid who's growing up too fast, where he's, 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 he's a little kid who's becoming an old man. And Peggy Sue got married as an older woman, being able to go back into the past and revisit her life and maybe fix it or learn from it. Uh, or just or kind of see what you know, like what happened, and this yeah, sort of fits in that in a way of he becomes young again. But I don't really understand in this movie. He like, I just like I don't. It's like there's so much going on in this movie. I don't really understand what the theme is. Like, I feel like Jack and Peggy Sue. I get what those movies are trying to tell me, but it's like, why is this movie called Youth Without Youth? Because he's young again, but he was old, and I don't really understand the title, and then. So he's young again, but then he also has all these superpowers. And I don't really understand what any of the point of it or the meaning of any of it is. And it's certainly interesting at times, like you said, like all these little pockets could have become a movie. But because it's like an ever-changing movie every 10 minutes, you never really get fully emotionally invested in anything that's going I think I'm supposed to feel something when he's with the lady that looks like the lady he used to know and she's turning old, but I'm just kind of like, okay, I guess something else is going to happen now instead. You know, this is like how this movie's been going. Um, it just sort of, it jumps around too much and it just is, I mean, it's definitely a movie you would fund yourself, that's for sure. <laughs> that's for sure. And one of the making of uh, featurettes 
the makeup artist said that Coppola told him this is the student film I never made and I can it totally yeah. has that feel <laughs> and if you ever were in a class of student films most of them are not very good yeah most of them are, are heavy on theme and symbolism uh, but are kind of all over the place and not great but thanks to the teacher they're all like 10 minutes long <laughs> But maybe he had to get this out to get to the next two movies, which I really liked yeah. a lot. So, like, maybe he had to to get to a tetra. You had to get, you had to dump out a youth without youth. Yeah, without this youth is by far. Richard Roper said that this is Coppola's most experimental movie, and I think that is accurate. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of themes in this, like age and like regret and like intelligence and youth and time and language but thinking about time when regard to this movie i would made me think about rumblefish and how those are young characters that feel like they are running out of time and then that coppola does a thing of in like daydream sequences the clocks are spinning really fast because the matt dylan character feels like he's running out of time I was also reminded of Dracula, of yeah. Coppola's Dracula. They're movies about, uh, let's say, let's you know, be generous and call Dracula a man. They're both about men who like live long enough that they find their lost love again. Yeah. And they have another chance at, at being with her. But it doesn't work out because Dracula is a vampire and because he has this effect on her that makes her age yeah yeah no yeah it totally fits in with that movie i it's just i think he should have picked one theme but maybe that's what the book is like but it's based on a novella so who knows what is all this stuff in the novella and maybe that works when you're reading a maybe the the novella is like you know stream of consciousness or i don't know how it's written but i feel like maybe this works better when you're reading it all and jumping around as opposed to watching it and wishing there was more uh, worth noting, Matt Damon's in this movie, which I had no idea. Yep. So the star of The Rainmaker, Matt Damon, shows up in one scene as sort of like a FBI, CIA sort of government guy. Is that right? Is yeah. That, from what I can yeah, he's a spy because at this point he is uh, – uh, Tim Roth is hiding out in Geneva and he's like a high-rolling gambler because he can predict the outcome of roulette. <laughs> that happens in the movie, <laughs> and and yeah, the uh, the Nazi woman is also there, like either trying to kill him or recruit him. We don't know. And Matt Damon shows up as an American, maybe trying to recruit him, like you know, uh, steal him away before the Nazis can get him. Uh, and yeah, just a fun little cameo. Yeah. Or maybe there's an hour of Matt Damon that was cut out and he was like a star of the movie. For We'll never know until Youth Without Youth Redux comes out on 4K Blu-ray. <laughs> the one thing that kind of, to me, stood out in a bad way was I felt, though there were cool shots in the movie, overall it just kind of felt and looked sort of cheap. And I think it was due to it being shot on sort of what seemed like early DV camera oh yeah like yeah. it felt very 
like you can tell that it was shot on video. Yeah, now this uh, is, it doesn't look it, like like very very early. Like uh, I think there was a company doing it called Indigent, and they made uh, Tadpole and Pieces of April. They look like home movies because they are made with those kinds of cameras. Uh, this is it's a step above that, but yeah. they're still using the like early generation DV cameras. And it helps that the DP is I'm going to say this name wrong. Mihai Malamer Jr., who did The Master and Jojo Rabbit. So, like, clearly, like, a very good DP. And there are cool shots in this, like the upside down. The more experimental shots are fun. But unfortunately for me, the scenes that are kind of like people talking, hanging out, the sets look cheap. It looks like bad video. And I think what's interesting is around this time in Hollywood and in the indie world, like, video was definitely being used a lot. And in things that were around the same, maybe even the same year or around it, like Inland Empire or Michael Mann's Miami Vice and Public Enemies, both all shot on DV. But they really, those three movies push the video and really want it to kind of look like they're not hiding that it's, that it's video. And that's just kind of part of the appeal of those, of those movies is it gives you kind of a more intimate, a lot of it's handheld. It kind of puts you in, in the moment. Whereas this... I feel Coppola, maybe because this is the first movie he shot on video ever, is trying to still kind of make it look like film, and it doesn't really work because it just it looks degraded, and it just makes everything feel kind of cheap. It just feels like they didn't have enough money or didn't want to spend the money on film. And so you have this video-looking movie that like 85% of the time just looks bad, in my opinion. I feel this doesn't look good. Um, and... It just feels like maybe because he produced it on his own, it just it's lacking kind of the finesse. Like the sound is really bad too at times. Like a lot of the dialogue is clearly dubbed, and sometimes I thought it was voiceover, but then like someone would turn to the camera like, "Oh no, wait, Tim Roth is talking in this scene." It's just the way it's recorded or laid in. It sounds like voiceover, not like they didn't do room tone or some weird. There's something going on where the sound mix is not good for a lot of the movie. Um, and so it ends up kind of feeling like bad video art at times. Um, and that kind of took me out of the movie a lot, as opposed to the next movie, Tetra, which I think looks fucking incredible, which I think same DP also. Yep. And that movie, maybe it's shot on video, but maybe because it's been a few years later, that movie is like looks like a million bucks, whereas this movie looks like a million pennies. It doesn't really look very good at all. Uh, it looks, it feels cheap. It feels like, and there's definitely like the scenes of Tim Roth alone in his hotel room, kind of talking to himself, which feels very much like this. The scenes we'll see later in Twix with Bill Kilmer in his hotel room, kind of doing, you know, shtick. But like here, it just feels like okay, he's got video, and this, this is how you end up getting 162 hours of footage. As couple as like, oh, video, you can just keep shooting. It's like. So like the line from Boogie Nights, like this is video. You just keep shooting, Jack. Just keep going, and uh, that's what he clearly did. You're just gonna film Tim Roth just riffing in a room for days on end, and you just edit in whatever you want, and it just kind of lacks the. I don't know I've never felt a, that a movie of Coppola's before this felt so loose in a bad way. I feel like he's clearly always had a great vision, and like he's building his own studios and like making these crazy camera setups for Rumblefish and all these different movies and this one is the first one where it kind of feels like he didn't 
think through every shot, maybe because he was shooting on video and thought, like, we can just kind of do a improv thing, or I don't know, that's kind of how a lot of it feels, and it does, it kind of doesn't work for me when it's mixed with, like, these really composed shots, and it just doesn't blend, and maybe if it was four hours, it does blend, and you have, like, an hour where it's this riffing on video, and an hour where it's more composed, and I don't know. <laughs> from from the commentary and and other stuff I read, uh, it seemed that Coppola, you know, wanted to go back as he always did, wanted to go back to making movies like like the way he made Rain People and You're a Big Boy Now, which is like half plan it and then half improvise it. Like we know what the scene is, let's show up on the day. Oh, things look different or there's a problem. Well, let's see how we can do that and just kind of. Uh, like work that in to what they're shooting so it's not like uh, uh, you know it's not like every shot is storyboarded and uh, and planned so I feel like that approach probably leads to that that effect of things just kind of feel kind of feel all over the place (laughs) and it's very unlike say the godfather where even though of course there was like chaos on that movie but because of like Gordon Willis's approach all the characters like had to stand in the same place and then they took three steps to the right then they were out of the light so it, everything was very composed and mm-hmm. very very planned and this was a lot the uh, the approach was a lot more uh, a lot more loose which is what Coppola wanted like the rain people they just Drove around they and just drove around film, and filmed scenes, it. And yeah. Like, hey, James Con, like, go be in that parade. Just there's a parade that we didn't. It's not in the script. We didn't know what was gonna happen. Here, you go get in that parade, and we'll film it. But it's a period picture, so you can't really interact with the actual environment. Yeah, in a way, because you have to have everyone in costume and have these old cars and. And maybe that kind of movie should only be made by the youth. Maybe <laughs> an older man. <laughs> You know, because this is Coppola in his late 60s. He's probably 67, 68 around this time. So he is sort of the Tim Roth character's age, you know, in this movie. And, I, I, yeah, I feel like, I don't know. I feel like sometimes it's good to have maybe a studio tell you when to rein it in or say no. <laughs> so it. It, again, it feels like a movie that was self-financed. This is clearly, but but weird that he forced himself to edit it down. But I guess I saw making of where, I guess he thought this movie was going to be huge because Coppola is delusional, and he really thought like this could become like a midnight movie. Though I don't think that was a thing anymore by two thousand seven. But like I think he thought this would be a movie that would be out for a while, and people would kind of really get into it and really want to just keep seeing this and it would just be like this movie that people can be like whoa like the, the, what this, this movie's deep and this movie's crazy and watch it over and over again and <laughs> be this, this weird indie art house hit or something and it wasn't like nobody really saw it at all and it just sort of came and went um, but it's just it's just wild that he tried to cut it down just because he is he should have been in the place that, like, you know, uh, you know, like Scorsese is in now, where he can just make a three-hour movie and, like, no one gives a shit. He's make your Irishman. Irishman reference! <laughs> if you're drinking along. Uh, that 
you can just make your two. And maybe if this was made now for Netflix, he would just be comfortable doing like the, just letting the four-hour movie be, which I wish he did. Oh God, yeah, that would be. <laughs> you know what that is? That would be uh, Inyaritu's Bardo, which I'm still suffering through. Is this a thing? I don't even know what this is. This oh is yeah, new? Uh, yeah. It was. It came out last year. It's like Bardo or blah 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 on the plaza. <laughs> it's it's his like I'm getting old, so I need to make my fictionalized memoir before I die movie because that's that's what all the filmmakers are all the old filmmakers are doing now. Spielberg with the Fablemans, uh, and but it's so like it's like <laughs> it's so pretentiously art house and like the exact way of what you think of when you think of like oh like insufferable pretentious art house uh and yeah and I'm like well I'll watch it you know because <laughs> like yeah it's a new I've, I've watched his other movies but it's like almost three hours long the last time I tried watching it Netflix froze up on me <laughs> even Netflix is like nah yeah uh Man, I didn't even heard. I didn't even heard of this movie. This is the problem with Netflix. It's like movies by multi Academy Award winning director comes out, and you just don't hear about it, and it's just sort of like dumped on there, and you're like, okay. Yes, that would be Youth Without Youth <laughs> if it came out today. I don't think it would. I don't think Youth Without Youth is uh, is pretentious or insufferable. It I find it frustrating <laughs> and confusing, but uh, yeah, it would be like. Oh, this art house like it's Netflix you can do whatever we let you do whatever and so okay I'm gonna make a weird esoteric art house movie and Netflix is like okay it's already on the service like what do you mean it's been on the service for like months mark my words he will put out a director's cut of this and we will talk about it and it may be better I just feel like this this needed to be longer um, or maybe I'll be wrong maybe when we watch it we'll be like nope this just maybe needed to not be I think Youth Without Youth, uh, I mean, it clearly wanted to, like, wow us with its uh, emotion in the in the lost love story and, like, you know, really make us think about, like, the themes and everything. But I feel like it's... It doesn't work on those levels, at least not anywhere close to what it's aiming for. I feel like this is the movie that could maybe... Like, just maybe spark one of those esoteric conversations you have in college about, you know, what, what is time? What is language? And you just kind of go on. You, maybe you're in an altered state, and that's what brings up those, those conversations. But if there are no uh, mood-altering substances around, you can just put on youth without youth. And maybe <laughs> Feel that, like you did it. And yeah, and then that that will make you go like, oh man, like what is what is time even, and like where is what is the next evolution of the human race? Yeah, uh, this movie was not well received by critics. Speaking of our old friend Roger Ebert, he gave it one and a half stars. Yeah, which is bad for that's it's a low. That's like. That's bad. Uh, he it's and, but but strangely the Ebert review is kind of it's uh, usually when Roger Ebert gives something that low it's kind of a mean review and he can be kind of sassy and and funny and this one it's it doesn't it's it's weird it doesn't read like a one and a half star review it is just sort of politely 
just being like, yeah, this didn't work for me. It's just really confusing. So I don't know why he like the the thing doesn't really tell the review doesn't tell me why such a low review because that's like slightly above trash, you know. <laughs> it's one and a half stars from Ebert, but he's just sort of like it's confusing. It doesn't like this guy will make better movies, and he's right because Tetro is much much better in my opinion. Um, but yeah, he uh, he. Uh, does not like it. And it's a pretty short review as Ebert goes. Uh, it's, uh, it's a shorty. It is on um, uh, Michael Phillips did not like this one. He gave it thumbs down. Richard Roper also did not like it but found it interesting enough to give thumbs up. Interesting. He said, oh, okay. He said, I don't know if I want to watch this movie again uh, to go through all of its complexities or I never want to see it again. <laughs> The person that I thought had the best review of it was Mr. Rex Reed, <laughs> who uh, notoriously uh, fell asleep during uh, Cabin in the Woods and wrote a review of his dream and didn't realize it. But for this movie that is a dream, he wrote, and I quote, and I don't agree with all of this, but it's amusing. He's catty. I love him. You know a movie is doomed when the only star in it is Tim Roth. I don't really know what that means. Tim Roth is great. Uh, but then he goes on, you know it's pretentious when the ads print the logo backward and upside down, which I guess is on the poster. Not one word of this bilge makes one lick of sense, and it is two hours and six minutes long. The only way to survive youth without youth is dead drunk. <laughs> which I'm sure he was when he saw it. Um, yeah, the movie came and went quickly, did not become the midnight hit that Coppola wanted, but... He was not slowed down. This just re- this is just the beginning of his kind of I wouldn't even say comeback, just like his his uh, rejuvenation, his uh, his 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 coming back to loving movies. And I, I bet a lot of it maybe was due to within the time between <clears throat> Rainmaker and this, his daughter Sophia became the cool filmmaker. You know, like like what year was uh, Virgin Suicides? Ninety nine. Ninety nine. And then Lost in Translation was two thousand two thousand three. Marie Antoinette uh, was two thousand six. So like in those ten years, his daughter kind of comes out of nowhere in a way. Like not if you're studying how we studied, and he knew that she co-wrote you know New York stories, but like her making this movie that out the gate is great and beloved. And then continuing like Lost in Translation as being so loved and becoming like the hip filmmaker and making movies like how Coppola wanted to, where it is very much like, we're going to Japan with Bill Murray and we're just going to film a bunch of stuff and we're going to improv a bunch and we're going to just, there's not a lot of plot and it's just hanging out and it's like a dream. And, and Mary Antoinette is a period piece like Youth Out Youth where it feels very improv and it's very handheld and it feels like there's like, there's definitely like an energy to her movies. And I feel like, I mean, she won an Oscar in those 10 years for, for Lost in Translation for screenplay. She should have won director. But uh, I think that uh, I feel that kind of maybe helped give him, in a way, that was sort of the lightning bolt that struck him, as I feel it, it must have been, like seeing his daughter. And I think even Roman Coppola directed CQ in, those ten, in that 10-year span, yeah. too. And so his children are making these hip, cool movies that young people love that like is winning awards that are considered some of the best movies of its time and i feel maybe he's like all right okay maybe i'll take inspiration from these kids of mine and i'll make my 
crazy experimental runner because like Sofia Coppola movies feel very experimental they, they still do and I feel like he just got a, got a, maybe got a fire under him because of that um, didn't work here for me <laughs> it's definitely experimental it's definitely big, a big a, mo- a more interesting comeback if he like than if he just made like some drama or something or if he had made another Hollywood movie that wasn't as personal or whatever but like I feel like though this is sort of like the beginning of some great stuff. The next few things are, are very, very exciting and interesting to me. Um, There's a a shot of uh, Veronica played by Alexandra Maria Lara. It's confusing because one plays. of the characters <laughs> is Lara, which I it spelled out Laura. Like Tim Roth looks at an engraved watch that she gave him, forever yours, L A U R A, but they only ever call her Lara. Yeah. And that's then the actress's name. And then she plays <laughs> another character that's maybe the same character again. It's and it goes on and You're on. You're making me confused again, AJ. <laughs> oh, there's a shot of her as she's you know going through her aging thing in their like seaside cabin and she's uh, sitting on the windowsill looking out the window and Coppola called that the Sophia shot because <laughs> like in her movies then yeah it, in like her the, movies yeah, the female it's... protagonist will often sit forlornly by a window and look out like Scarlett <laughs> Johansson does that a lot in yeah. Lost in Translation sure Mary Antoinette did that a few times yeah uh... <laughs> Also, before I forget, uh, when, when you were talking about the makeup or lack of makeup on Veronica, on Alexandra Maria Lara, and how like, oh God, she's aging so terribly. <laughs> she looks like the, a uh, the makeup artist <laughs> said that he wanted to try to avoid prosthetics as much as possible when he was making her character look older. He said, if you look at photos of women in their 20s and women in their 40s, the big difference is their hair. So what they did was they like lightened her hair and thinned it out to make it look weaker. Mm. And then they just only very lightly added like shading onto her face and around her eyes to make her look more like a normal normal 40 year old or a hideous troll according to Tim Roth's yeah. character but they they did not then they did not then adjust Tim Roth's reaction <laughs> he, he acts like she's Quasimodo he's just like oh god and it's just so ridiculous because she literally looks like a normal person that anyone would be lucky to have a relationship with and yeah. just, but he's acting like it's just so horrible uh that's when the movie got a little silly to me. <laughs> also worth noting that she uh, was she played Hitler's last secretary in Downfall, where Bruno Gantz played Hitler. Much famously to the meme that became very popular yeah. where people kept uh, putting their own subtitles. What year was that movie? Was that after this? No, that was before. Was I that think. before? That was uh, 2004. Oh, okay. Yeah. So yeah, there you go. They just loved hanging out together. They're like, let's yeah. actually, they have no scenes together in this movie at all. <laughs> so we have this movie. 
Uh, not up for any Oscars at all. Not none of the uh, yeah. couple of movies we ran at will be. But it did get nominated for an Independent Spirit Award in Ooh. 2008. And I know that AJ, cool. you're an Oscars ep- expert, but I thought it'd be interesting because it's always fun to kind of jump through to kind of see where. So this is sort of like where the indie world was in '98. So the or in 2007. Sorry. Uh, so what were the other kind of movies that like Coppola is being a part of and. He's not a part of it, but he's, but he's not for cinematography. So let's just jump to where what they what they lost that, and then maybe can maybe kind of jump through some of that. So uh, cinematography for that year, Youth Without Youth nominated a movie called Vanaya. I don't know what that is, um, uh, but that was up. The Savages. Remember the movie the Savages? Oh yeah, Laura Linney and. Uh... Philip Seymour Hoffman, Lust Caution, the Ang Lee movie, and the winner, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, because uh, that was Janusz Kaminski. So I mean, you can't really. But this is an interesting year, like indie movies. It's funny because these are indie movies, but you're also kind of getting into like indie movies that only have famous people in it, which kind of happened after post '90s. <laughs> you're getting like. Like Juno won Best Feature for Independent Spirit Award. The, you have Jason now, Bateman, and you're having you know like all these famous uh, A Mighty Heart up nominated for Best Picture. That's the uh, the movie uh, star, Michael Winterbottom starring Angelina Jolie. I'm Not There, the Bob Dylan uh, Todd Haynes movie. Paranoid Park, the Gus Van Sant film, uh, which I think is the only movie up for Best Picture that didn't have anyone famous in it. And The Diving Bell and The Butterfly. And then Best First Feature, it's interesting to see, that Vanya movie again, Two Days in Paris, the Julie Delpy, kind of yeah. her take on the, the Sunrise movies in a way. Rocket Science, remember that? Oh, Directed yeah. by some yeah. guy named Jeffrey Blitz. Kind of, I always thought it looked like a Rushmore, like Wes Anderson ripoff, maybe it is. The Great World of Sound by uh, Craig Zobel. And The Lookout, remember The Lookout, Scott Frank movie starring Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Jeff Daniels, sort of Norish. Those are best first feature. Other notable things, uh, best screenplay nominee, you got a Waitress, Year of the Dog. Best first screenplay went to Diablo Cody. Zoe Cassavetes nominated for Broken English for first screenplay. Uh, best foreign film went to Once. Because Ireland is another country. Technically, Technically yeah. foreign film. Casavetti's award went to August Evening. Oh, the Someone to Watch award went to Raman Barani for Chop Shop. And he did become a respected filmmaker. So they were mm-hmm. right. But uh, Youth Without Youth lost cinematography. Which is funny as much as I complained about how it looked. <laughs> I don't follow the Indie Spirit Awards that closely. Really only in how they may or may not influence or be a predictor of the Oscars. So this is really, yeah. That year Juno was kind of the only one that it really predicted to get, because that ended up being nominated for Best Picture. And it's interesting seeing, like, so many of these movies I saw, like, at the multiplex. So it's it's very interesting what technically is and isn't an indie movie when you're talking about, like, oh, I don't like mainstream <laughs> movies. Like, well, Juno's an indie movie, so... But it still probably costs it, millions of dollars and has, you know, Jennifer Garner and yeah, that stuff. So. Uh, yeah, so, like, yeah, there's a lot of like, famous people in indie movies, like, more and more, and now, like, the Indie Spirit Awards, I think, are... They're televised or broadcast somewhere because they, like, have enough famous people yeah. going to them now. 
And worth noting, uh, the director Juno, the son of the man who produced Ghostbusters and Stripes. So yeah. it's not like he's some guy out of nowhere throwing stuff together to make a movie because he's just got a little bit of uh, nepotism playing <laughs> there. Uh, still a beloved movie that doesn't take away his, uh, you know. But is it, uh, what does indie even mean? I don't know. But what's weird is Youth Out Youth made by Coppola, more experimental than any of these other movies. Maybe Diving Bell and the Butterfly comes is like the one that would be equivalent of like being highly experimental. But also, but stars a Reservoir Dog, so it still isn't a full indie movie because <laughs> it still stars Tim Roth, who, you know, so he's famous. Anything else to say about this movie? I, we talked longer about it than I thought we would. I'm shocked. Me too, and <laughs> I, we've we've covered a lot. There's some cool stuff with the mirror with mirrors, and like you know, Tim Roth will get up, and the mirror, his mirror reflection stays the same. Um, yeah, a lot of shots are reminding me of Rumblefish, the way that it felt like maybe it was in camera, or kind of like overlapped shots that kind of make it like you know the effects seem kind of you know old old yeah. style maybe. His uh, his superpowers are like just like that's they're very literary. Yeah. <laughs> when you tell me oh it's based on a novella, I'm like oh okay like yes it just seems like that's something that gets thrown that's uh, gets thrown away in a line or two of a Romanian novella. <laughs> yeah, because his superpowers are like basically just functional to the plot and then not brought up again. <laughs> After it's like, the, you can uh, read a book by touching it, okay. It's not a compelling thing to see in a movie, but you like, told well, me how, that's what Well, how does he get his money? Like, oh, well, he, he knows the outcomes of uh, casino games. So that's how he gets his money. Does, do you use that for anything else? No, 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 no. Just forget about it, okay? Now we're on to <laughs> the woman regressing linguistically. Yeah, uh, so it's the start of a new... And very interesting phase. That I feel we're still Coppola. in this phase, even though Twixt was the last. Like Tetro's the next episode that came out two years after this, two thousand nine, and then Twixt came out just a few years after that. And now here we are. I think maybe almost even ten years after Twixt with uh, Megalopolis coming out. Is that this year or is that next year? Uh, I would uh, I would assume next year. Yeah, but like he is in this sort of like I am a young guy making experimental films again. I've re restarted my career in a way, which is interesting. It doesn't work all the time, but it's in, it's very interesting, and I'm very excited to talk about Tetro, a movie that I do like quite a bit. So uh, Tetro is a movie I I have never seen, ooh. and I don't even really know what it's about. Oh. All I know is that it's it is in black and white. And it has um, that Ansel Elgort. A- nope, and, nope. No? Aiden uh, Ehrenreich, the other, the other white, handsome white guy. Yeah. Who's better? Who's better than Ansel Elgort? <laughs> he, he was great in Solo. Yeah. He's a good actor. And Vincent Gallo. Hey. So there you go. All right. Uh, now that's an indie spirit movie. <laughs> Based on a verse, whatever that means. So we'll have to look into what that is based on a verse called Fausta. Um, so there you go. We will. Uh... One thing I want to bring up is: were there subtitles when you watched this movie? Oh, so this is what's fun. There's all these scenes where people are talking, 
And I'm like, oh, what an interesting choice to just like have people talk in a foreign language and not subtitle it. Like, that's cool. It's kind of put in the moment and it's about linguistics. So maybe we're just supposed to hear the sounds. But then I realized like, this seems like a lot. I'm going to just check the subtitle button and turn it on. And I did. And I was like, oh shit, all this dialogue is subtitled. So I had to rewind it quite a bit and go through like what everyone, because there's scenes where like people are speaking in German and other things. But it is, it is subtitled, but it wasn't the default. On the, was that the same with the DVD? Yes, it was. <laughs> because so I, I too, I had the same thought. So I get the DVD from Netflix again, and I pull up the subtitle options, and there's English and French. And the English subtitles are of Coppola's commentary. Oh, what? That's so weird. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, so there are not subtitles? But there are. The version I saw, there, yeah, there are. Yeah. Maybe they were fan made, but like I, I, I swear, like there's even a part where he's speaking in a language that he makes up, and those I swear those are subtitled too. Maybe I was punked. Maybe it was a total prank. But like there are when I watch it, there are subtitles through all the scenes of people talking, not like not the Sanskrit or when she talks into like ancient languages, but like definitely the German, and like the languages that are still in you know usage these days. Like those are all subtitled. So I don't know. I have no idea. Part of the confusion, the layers of confusion yeah. to this to this film. It takes place in Romania and Switzerland and all over the place, but the languages involved are English, <laughs> Sanskrit, German, French, Italian, Russian, Romanian, Mandarin, Latin, Armenian, Egyptian, and not to mention the made-up language of Tim Roth. Yeah. Yeah, so um, I don't know, if, if you watch this movie... I, I don't think the subtitles will help you. <laughs> if, if there are subtitles available to you, I don't think that they will help. It didn't uh, make it any more sense to me. Yeah. Oh, and it's also worth mentioning, and I don't know if you noticed this, that he, Coppola did direct one thing between the Rainmaker and this. It was a commercial that I could not find anywhere. Uh, I, I looked over the internet. I, if anyone knows where I can find it, you know, tell us on... I don't know what we're not really on anything anymore, but like <laughs> in person, tell me in person. <laughs> but he directed a commercial for a thing called Unmitten Poto Dans Le Monde. Is that, did I do it right? There was an advertising company got a bunch of directors to do a thing in the year 2000, so it meant seven years before this. And they got a lot of directors to, to direct uh, for it. They were famous like Roy Anderson, Sofia Coppola, Mike Figgis, Spike Lee, David Lynch, Alex Proyas, Vim Vendors, Wong Kar Wai, amongst the many. And I don't know what it is. I don't even know what it's sold. It's just sort of like a weird thing that I can find no, not a lot of information about. Um, and I can't find it anywhere. Something, something around the world. <laughs> Good job. Buying it's like the ad. Some guessing some company, some product that all these directors did a cool thing for. Or Remember not. when American Express had directors do their? That Wes Anderson one's really good. Yeah, and there was a Shyamalan one. Yeah, there's a Shyamalan one yeah. where he's like seeing spooky things. Wait, didn't around. we review? We talked about that yeah. on the podcast. That's and then right. there's one. Of, I think there's one of Scorsese. That seems right. But yeah, that, unfortunately, we cannot review. It's a two-minute ad. Don't know where it is, but that's fine. We still have two movies left. And I think the plan is, by the end of the summer, we're wrapping up uh, Francis Ford Coppola. And then 
who knows who will be next for starting in autumn. Actually, we know, but we're not going to tell you. Uh, it'll be a surprise. Yeah. <laughs> All um, right. So it's Big um, G. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh, just uh, that would be it. What like a year and a half of us just screaming Mick G. Mick G. <laughs> I like McGee. Charlie's Angels. I like McGee. (laughs) McGee, McGee, he's in my line. (laughs) (laughs) Leave Christian Bale alone. He's great. You know, and you know, you don't know what it's like to be an actor and have someone in your eye line. Maybe that really does. It probably does throw you off. Yes. And you know, I bet many actors say that it just wasn't caught on tape, and he got a bad rep. But luckily, did not destroy his career. Everyone loves Christian Bale. He, he, he was bad. He's Batman. He's great. Anyway, so next time, hopefully sooner than what we've, we've you know, we're doing about one every you know eight years. But we're hoping to do sooner episode of Tetro by the middle of the summer. What else are we doing? It's too hot to do anything else. Let's watch. A beautiful black and white Coppola movie starring Han Solo and the Brown Bunny. I'm looking forward to it. You, as you should. It's really good. All or right. maybe you'll hate it, but I love it. Yeah. <laughs> our uh, so we our Twitter account still exists. I haven't checked it in <laughs> I don't know how long. Um, it's just there. Yeah. It's just, existing. <laughs> just I get on there on my personal account and like why. Uh, why, we why have an Instagram page, but I haven't checked in about a year, so it's just kind of part of the internet graveyard, which is fine. Yeah, so uh, uh, we're uh, <laughs> at Director's Wall. You can email us, directorswall at gmail.com. We have a website. Yeah. that's the, I think that's kind of the best way to follow what's up is go Director's to our website, Wall. bookmark it. Directorswall.com. There yeah. are, uh, there's a space for comments. Comments are turned on, so you can leave one. Occasionally people have before. Uh, you can also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, give us a five-star review. That really helps with Apple Podcast visibility. <laughs> yes, I finally said it. I finally pitched us on, <laughs> on a podcast provider, uh, which I mean to do at the end of every episode. But you never but do. But I never do it, <laughs> it's the ever. First time in like, and it's worth noting, I think, hold on. I, this is something that I realized the other day. Give me, give me a second here. Oh, uh, um, we are not going to be on Stitcher anymore because Stitcher is not going to be a thing anymore. But we will still be on uh, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google, uh, Spotify, and probably another one that I'm forgetting about. Maybe we should get on YouTube. Man, there's there's someone who has the direct who has directorswall.com. Did you know that? What? Wait, is I that thought us? we did. Is that us? <laughs> oh, that is us. I looked it up, and I just saw the headline, like, we're going through John Grisham. I'm like, who's going through every John Grisham? Oh, wait, that was <laughs> But it's worth noting, uh, and I, we didn't mention this the last episode, that we are now on 52. This is our 52nd episode. Wow. We are now 52 years old in podcast episode years. That's pretty good. And what year did we start in? Do you remember what year was the first episode? I feel like it was 2015. 15 2016 when we started doing Shyamalan movies yeah we're uh, but our 50th episode was knock at the cabin and we didn't celebrate it we oh. didn't celebrate our 50th and going back going back to Shyamalan that, yeah that was quite perfect. serendipitous so this is 52 so this will be great and when we pick uh, you know Takashi Miki or Jess Franco it'll mean we'll get to like episode 4000 we'll, like, yeah. we'll just really keep going uh 
So yeah, congratulations, fifty-two episodes, which is impressive considering how frequently we put them out. <laughs> frequently we put it out, but it's good. It's, we, it's when we feel like it. Uh, but I'm I'm I don't know, I'm feeling the bug. I'm feeling like Coppola did when he made this. I'm ready to jump in. I think uh, let's hammer out Tetra and Twix. Let's like really just go through these crazy, weird, small experimental films by uh, Papa Coppola. All right, so uh, join us next time. Hopefully it'll still be the summer for Tetro. All right. And it's finally raining. Raining. Okay.